0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I get the honor to introduce our speaker for today. Um, So Ryan, if you'll join us on stage. Um, I mentioned giving, and when you give to our church, part of what we invest in is what's called NICE. Nice. You made it up real quick. I'm done. I'm scared. I'm good. Uh, uh, part of what we invest in is called the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. So I'm told um, that Ryan is the chancellor of the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship or just the guy in charge of it. I'm administrator for it. Yeah. Um, What it is, it doesn't matter. That part doesn't matter. What does matter is what it is, and it is a seminary-style training investing in pastors who will mostly lead small churches in rural um, South Dakota, and so we love the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship, and if you're with me, or if you've heard Ryan preach before, you already know this, but I am so encouraged every time I get to hear him teach the Bible. He has a way of, uh, for me uh, at least, I don't know about you, dumbing it down, in a way that's that's really helpful and so I'm so excited to see how you will do that today for us so Ryan Franchuk. Uh,
1: good morning again and um, it's just so good to be with you this morning as uh, I get to see old friends and you know, Lord willing meet new friends and uh, get to share God's word with you. I'm here with my wife Sally and our kids Adoniram and Ezra and Evangeline and uh, like Jazz mentioned I'm uh, one of the pastors at uh, River Community Church in Del Rapids, South Dakota, just 20 miles north of here. And uh, we live in Baltic, actually, which is 15 miles north of here, a very small town. And um, and so I'm on staff at River Community Church, and then like Jazz mentioned, I'm... Uh, the Administrator for the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship, and I just want to take a minute, if that's okay, to explain a little bit more about that program because uh, Connection Church has been such a a dear relationship for me uh, personally and for us as a program, as the TPA. Uh, Pastor Jonathan taught our preaching class the last time that was offered, and we've had a number of men uh, from this congregation that have been part of the program, and so um, the TPA, or Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship, is uh, a program designed to sort of recenter the experience of training for vocational ministry, for pastoral ministry, to sort of recenter that back to the local church context. Uh, and so, kind of in the traditional model of training, uh, you know how how this has gone on, at least in the U.S. for the past. Hundred years or so, several hundred years, perhaps, uh, is that if a a guy feels a a call to pastoral ministry, uh, sort of the traditional track, I suppose, is that he might get a college degree uh, and then he might go on to seminary, an academic institution, and earn a master of divinity degree or something like that, and then uh, coming out of that academic experience, then go sort of look for a position, look for a place to serve, and um, and so a number of years ago, myself and a number of my friends. Uh, that were in pastoral ministry had been uh, educated in the traditional model of seminary, and it had been a really good, powerful experience for me and for my, my friends in ministry. Uh, and yet, as we reflected on that, we reflected on the, the truth or the reality, that, at least in our experience, that uh, that experience of seminary had been somewhat divorced from the context of the local church. And it just didn't, it wasn't quite congruent with what we thought uh, we should be trained to do, namely to to serve the bride of Christ, to give our lives for the people that Jesus bought with his own blood. And so to have that training, even the academic part of that sort of uh, almost with a a hands-off approach to the local church was just dramatically incongruent for us. And so we thought, is there a way that we can sort of recenter this whole deal, uh, this whole experience of, of a guy getting prepared to serve as a pastor, can we center that back to the local church? And so we developed uh, the, the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship, which basically consists of two parts. One is an academic component where uh, a student in the program runs through a 60-credit academic curriculum that uh, is roughly analogous to uh, like what you'd expect in a Master of Divinity degree is study systematic theology and preaching and and Greek and Hebrew and exegesis and Old Testament and New Testament and uh, church history and and, uh, and all the sorts of things that you might experience or expect, uh, at least for that kind of training. And then we couple that, the approximate other half of the program is we couple that with an apprenticeship. Uh, Where uh, the student is placed for his entire time in the program, is placed with a a mentoring church and a mentoring pastor. And we ask that church and that pastor to pour into this guy uh, as a ministry student that he might get uh, the day to day, week to week, hands on experience of the stuff that goes into pastoral ministry. And so we ask him to uh, accompany his mentor pastor when he goes to visit someone in the hospital, per se, or we ask him to get significant experience in preaching and teaching. We ask him to to uh, uh be involved at uh, every life uh, every level of the life of the church insofar as is possible uh, so that he might when he's finished with the program not sort of be thrust into a ministry context and have no clue what's going on or have never experienced any of this before but rather that he would have already uh, been in the trenches as it were to experience that and under kind of the watchful care of a loving mentor pastor and a loving mentoring church and so that's uh, how we conceive of the TPA we're not an academic institution we don't grant a degree uh, we we uh, give guys what we call a commendation for ministry which is uh, basically our programs' imprint on them that we we know this man and we that we know his life and his work and we commend him for pastoral ministry and we leave things like ordination up to uh, up to the the local church and to their uh, whatever the particular uh, uh, tradition uh, holds for those sorts of things. And so um, I'm happy to say again that Connection Church has just been such a long time uh, partner with us in the TPA and so I'm grateful to you and to Pastor Jonathan and uh, for your partnership in that work. And I'm um, excited to give you just like a, a, a quick update too on the state of the program. We currently have, uh, I believe there's 16 churches that are formally part of the TPA network. That means churches that resonate with our vision for radically local church-centered theological administration through training, churches that resonate with our with our convictions about the Bible and God and the gospel, uh, and um, and they're willing and interested in having students uh, raised up in their context or placed with them from the program. So there's 16 churches spread uh, from South Dakota to Iowa to Minnesota, even to New York State. Um, and so uh, there are, uh, this year we had the, the real joyful privilege of seeing a number of guys Uh, graduate from the program uh, formally, and this is, even though the program has been going for, uh, I believe, 10 or 11 years now, uh, this year is the first time we've actually seen some guys sort of finish the program as written. Uh, Like, we've got kind of a curriculum, you know, we've kind of got the three years spelled out uh, of what we expect that to look like, but uh, it usually doesn't look like that for guys. (laughs) Usually, uh, the Lord takes them on perhaps more meandering paths through this thing, and so this year is the first time we've seen guys sort of formally finish and graduate uh, even though a number of TPA students have already been called to vocational ministry even before their time in the program was completed. So uh, that's been a real joy for us this year. Uh, at the same time, that means we've kind of had a dearth of men coming into the program. On the front end, we've been a little light. And so I've asked all our TPA mentor pastors and partner churches to pray, to join me in praying that the Lord would just kind of now stack us on the front end again and uh, and recharge, uh, refill the the coffers of students. And uh I'm delighted to say, just in the past month, we've uh, welcomed three new students into the program. Uh, I joked that all our, all our mentor pastors must have started praying all at once or something, because I'd been asking them to do that for a while, And and uh, but then this is just how the Lord works, of course. You know how it goes in your own life, right? There's the ebb and flow uh, of, uh, of, of seasons of the ways that God's working in you, and that's just how it has been in the TPA, too. And so, um, thank you. Thank you this morning, uh, from the bottom of my heart, for your um, interest and participation in this as Connection Church, and I just look forward to seeing what the Lord might continue to do in us together uh, in that ministry. All right, enough yakking about the TPA. Uh, I want to get into God's Word. Let's go to God's Word this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 for us. And this is such one of the kind of the high water marks of the Bible, I think, uh, of course, every word of the scriptures is vital and important and, and, and the very word of God to us. And yet there are some points that's going to stick out almost like mountain peaks, right? Uh, mountain peaks amid the triumphant range. And this, I think, is one of those peaks. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I, the prophet Isaiah namely, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Give thanks to God for it. And would you pray with me one more time? We'll ask for his strength now as we look at it. Father, uh, each one of us this morning, I suspect, has come with some different weight laying upon us, some different anxiety, some stress, some... Uh, circumstances in our life, some emotional state, some mental state, something that that now troubles us or uh, perhaps keeps us from fully enjoying and embracing the goodness uh, that you've shown us in the gospel and in your word. And so I pray that uh, you would come and now wipe those things away, that you would just clear away every cobweb, every blurry uh, speck from our eyes, every, uh, every sin that in, would entangle us and weight us down, Lord, clear that all the way so that we might just get a renewed vision of your holiness. Show us yourself, Lord. Even as you've shown us yourself in Jesus Christ, there is no further word to say but in Jesus, Lord. Even as you've shown us your Son and shown us yourself in him, oh, Father, come now and give us a renewed sight of how holy you are just how other you stand apart from the world and from us, and yet at the same time how imminent you are, that you desire to know each one of us, and you do, and you call us to yourself in Christ. So come and help us, Lord. Be our guide. Be our help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to imagine this morning uh, about the most luxurious wedding that you can picture in your mind's eye. Uh, The sanctuary, perhaps, is resplendent, With decor, the groom and the groomsmen are stately and refined, standing as though chiseled out of marble. A string quartet plays Bach. Light streams from high windows. Flowers adorn everything and everyone. The ring bearer and the flower girl squirm in their formal wear and they timidly proceed down the aisle. The bridesmaids are pictures of shimmering elegance and then the bride enters the room. And of course, somebody says, all rise, and everyone stands, and at that moment, everyone's attention is affixed on the bride, and she enters, and she's wearing sweatpants and a ratty (laughs) T-shirt. No, of course not, right? No, the bride, the bride is radiant in her beauty. The magnificent white dress with a long, long train, the kind of train that takes multiple attendants scurrying behind, the kind of train that small animals get lost in. Why? Why is such a dress? Why is such a train? Well, of course, to put the weight, to put the emphasis on her and her beauty as the centerpiece of the ceremony. And so when Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died, when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord in his holy majesty, he sees, it says, the train of God's robe filling the entire temple. Just the train. And Don't you notice this as you've read, um, perhaps read the Old Testament, and, uh, and you've seen what we call theophanies, right? Those, those places where God shows up, as it were, when... Uh, <clears throat> People get some sort of sight. Of the of the of God and His glory, and isn't it always interesting that it's never they see God in His fullness, right? They never see the whole blazing picture of God. They see some part. Perhaps they see His backside. Perhaps they see just His train here. Remember when Ezekiel saw a vision of the Lord? It says he's he says such was the likeness of the appearance of the glory of the Lord. It's like three steps removed from seeing the actual glory, right? Because to see God in all His resplendence, in all His majesty is just too uh, overwhelming. And so here when Isaiah sees, <clears throat> see it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, <clears throat> excuse me, it says just the train is enough to fill the entire temple. It's big to stress just how pure, just how sovereign, just how weighty God is. And Isaiah and his people of the northern kingdom Israel, this time in the early 800 or sorry, um, <clears throat> in 8th 8th century BC, King Isaiah died probably in about 740 BC. Um, when when Isaiah and his people of the Northern Kingdom Israel uh, experienced this, they needed this vision because Isaiah uh, died. He had reigned for 52 years. Things had been relatively prosperous in that time, but towards the end, Isaiah himself had contracted leprosy. As a judgment from the Lord for not removing those idolatrous high places that they would set up uh, on every kind of elevated patch of land uh, in Israel, they would establish as some place of worship, and those had become places for Id- idol worship, and he hadn't taken care of those. And so, Uzziah, under the judgment of God, had been separated from society in his last years, and while he was largely removed, another power, a foreign power, namely Assyria, was growing in strength year by year. and. And all kind of marching inexorably toward 722 B.C. when Assyria would finally destroy and devastate the northern kingdom and, uh, and ruinate the, the capital, Samaria. And so at, that, at this point, right when Uzziah died, tensions, thank you very much, when tensions are rising uh, as Assyria threatens more and more, and then, of course, their king dies. An earthly hope is drained. Stability is shattered. Where is God, perhaps, they ask? Where is he? Is he around? Is he overseeing any of this? Or is he a weak, frail person just like you and me, just like our King Uzziah, who wasn't even in the public eye for his last years? Where is this God? Is he corrupt and is he polluted just like us and just like our rulers? And so Isaiah sees This vision in the year that King Uzziah died in verse 1, it says he saw the Lord enthroned high and lifted up, and the temple, the very place where God and humanity met, where God's presence was to dwell, it was drowned by just the train of the robe of the sovereign Lord. The Lord is a king, Uzziah sees. Of utmost power and purity, the only true king. And it says in verse 2 that he's surrounded by, the Lord is surrounded by the seraphim, or above him stood the seraphim, which means uh, literally the burning ones. Uh, and this is the only place, I, I believe, that we even see these beings in Scripture. Uh, described at all, burning ones that are some sort of angelic six-winged beings of fire. It says that they cover their faces and their feet with their wings. It says that they're unable to gaze even directly at the burning majesty of God. And what do these beings, whom, for, for you know, if we were to see one of them, what would? our reaction even be, for even these beings to gaze at at, uh, at God is impossible. And so what do they do perpetually? What does Isaiah see in his vision? It says in verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they call out to each other. Just They just call out all the time. This message or this song about the Lord they're worshiping, holy, holy holy, holy, is the Lord of hosts. The core idea of being holy, scripturally speaking, is to be set apart. In other words, they're declaring with their majestic being and voices that God is not like us and He's not like creation. That God is utterly unique, that there's no other being and there's no other thing like Him. And this is a the resounding theme throughout the whole Scriptures, but just to take a brief tour uh, of some other passages that describe this of God, Isaiah says later on in Isaiah 45, six, The Lord says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Or Isaiah 43.10, the Lord says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Or Isaiah 55.9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or as uh, it says in Exodus fifteen eleven, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so, this utter uniqueness, the separateness of God, is just assumed. Uh, even from the very first verse of the scriptures of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He wasn't made. He was before the beginning. He's radically apart from the whole created order. And so Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord who is profoundly other, profoundly different from the rest of everything that has existence. But holiness, of course, isn't just ontological. It doesn't just have to do with his being, uh, God's being, but rather the whole picture here shows us that God's holiness further consists of his being set apart from everything else in terms of his absolute moral purity. Back when Isaiah would have been writing some 2,800 years ago, Uh, They didn't have boldface or underlining or exclamation points, and so to emphasize something, they repeat it, they stress it with repetition, and almost always biblical repetition is twice, and yet here we see a triple repetition. One of the commentators uh, says on this passage that uh, a super superlative has been invented to emphasize just the total beyondness, the radical quality of God's holiness. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And in verse 4, the hymn of the seraphim is accompanied by the earthquake, it says, that shakes the very foundations of the thresholds of the temple. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke fills the whole place. This is a frequent accompaniment in the Bible whenever God's holiness is on display, of course, right? Think of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. What accompanies that profound happening in the life of Israel? Well, Mount Sinai quaked and smoked such that the people were terrified to even approach it. Or think of when God's radical purity is on display in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says the whole plain is filled with burning with smoke and their smoke rises up. In Revelation 19, the multitude of the saints in heaven witness the smoke that goes up from the burning destruction of Babylon the great and they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so when we see smoke accompanying these theophanies, these uh, the instances of the Lord revealing himself to his people, we know, uh, we see plainly how radically holy and other and pure the Lord is that Uh, sin cannot be tolerated in his presence. And so you and I know, as we read read the Bible, we know from what we know of God that he has many attributes, he has many qualities. We know that God is good. We know that God is eternal. We know that God is patient and just and merciful and omniscient, and God is love. And yet for all the qualities of God and all his perfection in each one of them, this vision makes us stop in our tracks and consider That God is holy, holy, holy. There is no one else like him. There is nothing else like him. He is supremely separate and unapproachable in burning purity. And so that even majestic, mysterious, six-winged, angelic, burnings, uh, angelic burning uh, beings must cover themselves before him. And so for Isaiah and for the people of Israel who are then the, the recipients of this message uh, and, and hear this vision proclaimed, this vision is something of, I think, a recapturing of this truth about the nature of God. And when Isaiah receives this vision, we see in verse 5 that he's just utterly undone, right? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, it says. Or another way we might translate that is, I'm silenced, as in the silence that immediately follows some terrible disaster or death. I'm silenced before this God. Why? Because in such awful purity, in the face of that, he's become acutely aware of just how unlike God he is. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Which on the face of it, perhaps to you and me, doesn't seem all that bad, right? I mean, what, he lets some bad words slip? (laughs) Stuff that comes out of the mouth is just words, right? And yet in view of the holiness of God, the God who's holy, holy, holy. Even the most insignificant seeming, Sin is shown for what it truly is. For example, um, you know, loud noise, many a time in our lives, is entirely acceptable and normal. It's normative. If you go to a, a, a sporting event, if you go to a concert, if you lift up your voice in worship to the Lord, loudness is appropriate. It's And, and in that context, uh, to hear another loud noise is, isn't offensive in the least. It just adds to the din or adds to the cacophony around you or whatever, right? Um, but uh, when everything's perfectly quiet and still, it provides this uh, avenue for this contrast to be shown clearly, and even tiny sounds in that environment are dramatically noticeable. Like if you were to go to a movie, and you, uh, you sat in the theater, and you watched the bombastic trailers, and you're like, oh, that looks dumb, that looks dumb, that looks dumb, right? And then, <laughs> and then of course, the trailers end, and there's that moment, that moment of absolute stillness in the theater, right? Right before the, f- the main event starts, right before the main feature. And imagine you're sitting there, anticipating the movie starting, it's utterly dead, deadly silent in the theater, and the person next to you starts eating a bowl of Captain Crunch, right? What, w- what would that sound like in your ears? It would be, it would be profoundly offensive, right? Even if you have... Uh, I think they call that misophonia right when you 're bothered when you 're annoyed by the sound of people eating like, even if you have just mild misophonia or something uh, like that would that would be it would be a travesty it would, it would be um, a shattering of the tranquility of the silence around you why because of the contrast because of the absolute stillness because of the utter purity of the silence that was then shattered by that sound, or if you go to a concert or a performance and you have your children with you and they you know, and everything is silent in between acts of a play or something, and then your kid says, "Can I have a piece of gum and uh, <laughs> you just you, you wince as you know that everyone around you is just their enjoyment of this has just been shattered too. Isaiah now understands by virtue of the contrast, by virtue of seeing this vision of the Lord high and lifted up in his holiness, he understands in light of who God is, both he and his people are. Unclean. And something has to happen for them to have fellowship with God. And amazingly, something does happen. By the mercy, the goodness of God, something does happen. Verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The seraph takes a coal from the altar where sacrifices were burned as an offering to the Lord, and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it, declares him atoned for. The atonement we see is instant and unilateral. Isaiah is reconciled to God, and in the following verses, We won't get into these in too too much detail today. But in verse 8 and following, we see him then respond to God and be called by God as a prophet to God's people. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. And so this vision of the holiness of God is now recaptured, I think, in Isaiah's life and perhaps even for Israel's life. And what would a recapturing of the vision of the holiness of God do in my life and in your life? What would it do for us if we were to come to grips with this as well? I've got a few suggestions for you on on how recapturing a vision of the holiness of God might do this, might change us somehow. The first suggestion I have is that recapturing a vision of the holiness of God, the God who is holy, 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 it gives life to our worship. It gives life to our worship. And I wonder what uh, default conception of God that you and I have. And where, does, where does our default conception of God come from? You know, if I were to gauge the state of Christianity in North America, I don't know that I would say that a radical vision of God's holiness is really even on the radar, right? Because pop Christianity so emphasizes God's closeness, God's likeness to us, God's familiarity to us, which, by the way, is blessedly and happily true. Nevertheless, the raw, essential nature of God as holy and transcendent is sometimes altogether missing in modern evangelicalism. God is a friend. Yes and amen. God is a confidant. Thank the Lord. God is one walking beside us. And yet if we start there and if we only know that... We tend to make a God in our own image and according to our own desiring. God all of a sudden tends to look a lot like our own imagining. Lo and behold, God has the exact same values and concerns that we do. So for some of us, right, God happens to be small government, gun ownership, prayer in public schools, and other Christians see a God who's radically pro-immigration. He wants Medicaid for all, right? Some people think God wants a border wall. Other people think God abhors such walls. What I'm getting at is this. How are we so sure what God is like? Have our values and our convictions come from God as he's revealed himself, or have we started with what we think would be good, what we think would be cool that God is like, and we've marshaled him to sort of support and back up our identity? The holiness of God, friends, the holiness of God mitigates mitigates against us using God like that. It mitigates against us forming him into our own likeness because we see the recaptured vision of the holy God that he's not a God to trifle with. He's not a God that we dictate to. He's not a God who should be spoken to or dealt with flippantly or casually or tritely. One view of the burning holiness of God, and we see Isaiah the prophet reduced to something of a quivering jelly. We don't bow down to and confess to things that we know and understand and control. You don't sing praise and glory to things that are mundane. You don't treasure and cherish what's commonplace. Not one person in here, I'm willing to, willing to bet, worships pants. <laughs> you need pants. I'm sure they look quite flattering on you. We have them by the dozens, though. Nobody here worships electricity. It does great things capable of amazing things. But we have a relative understanding of it, right? We harness it for our own purposes. We generate and consume it almost at our leisure. These things are commonplace. They're controllable. But God is totally beyond, utterly separate, uncontrollable, mysterious, lofty, terrifyingly powerful, stupefying in his sovereignty, infinite in his purity. He is a God to be worshiped. I wonder if in your own life you've had some profound experience of worship, perhaps here at Connection Church or perhaps some other place. You think back to one of those times in your life where it felt like you were just swept up, where you, it seemed like heaven met earth, like you were lost and freed of yourself, caught up in God. And wasn't it because you were mercifully given a glimpse of his holiness? Didn't it involve some shock and awe that the righteous God would love even you? So recapturing a vision of the holiness of God gives life to our worship, I think. I think recapturing a vision of the holiness of God helps us hate and fight sin. Because we can't meditate on this truth about God and forget that the God who is holy, 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 holy also desires to make us holy and calls us to be holy even as he is. And God's holiness shows us, it shows me, it shows you how horrific sin is. All sin, any sin, is catastrophic and deadly. It's a metaphysical abomination. Even the slightest, even the most insignificant-seeming sin is intolerable in the presence of a God who is thrice holy. No sinner can dwell with Him. It's just as if I had this bottle of pure, refreshing water here before me, and I put a single drop of urine into this bottle, Would you then take a drink? Of course you wouldn't, right? And I mean, unless you know you're parched in the desert or something, you might chance it. But right, but in normal circumstances, no, you wouldn't touch that. You wouldn't put that in your mouth. Or drop of poison. I think if you go backpacking in the mountains and there's crystal clear streams running everywhere, and you think, oh, I should just drink from this stream now, and yet there might be a hundred yards upstream a rotting elk carcass. Uh, filling it with bacteria or whatever, and some one parasite might devastate your digestive system for months to come, right? Even the tiniest impurity shatters the holiness. And so a vision of the holiness of God, a renewed sight of that, a renewed emphasis on that in our lives helps us see sin for what it truly is. You know, we'll try all sorts of stuff to change what we don't like about ourselves. We'll go on diets. We'll urge ourselves on in sheer willpower. We'll read books. We'll take all sorts of steps to help us avoid certain environments. We try all kinds of sort of externally motivated things or external things to to change what we don't like about ourselves. You know, on my I've got a an Apple iPhone, and I have uh, I've personally taken upon myself to disable as many of the so-called smart features of my smartphone as I possibly can. I don't have a browser, no Siri, no social media, no location tracking, no games, because I hate what I become in front of a smartphone. <laughs> now, for you, you might, you might be f- totally fine and dandy, and it might be a very useful tool to you, and I, I wish, you the we- wish you the best, bless you. Uh, for me, I hate it when I'm a tech-addled zombie, and I pay even less attention to my family. And I don't read as much, and I, I just, I'm lazy and apathetic. I don't like what it does to me. And so in an effort to kind of curb that, I take these weird external measures <laughs> because I just can't change from the inside. And steps like that, all these things we try to do are good and right and often necessary. But yet all those things can sometimes just be stopgaps and ineffectual if they don't have a deeper grounding and conviction that God is sinless and burning in purity, and he calls me to be holy as he is holy, and he calls you. He calls us to have a heart that fears the Lord, that loves Jesus Christ. He calls us to have a base level orientation and conviction that God is who he is, that he's sinless and righteous in purity. And when we're convinced of that, And when we believe that and we know it to the very core of our being, our affections are changed and when we simultaneously delight and tremble in it, then we see sin in our lives as we should and we're equipped then to fight sin as we should and we run to Jesus and by the Spirit's power we grow in our hatred of that sin in our lives and we then fight it by continuing to look to Christ and His completed work on the cross and we triumph in His victory and by the power of the Spirit then working through us, we change. Another observation about this is that recapturing a vision of the holiness of God, I think, gives clarity to our calling. We see in verse 8, I didn't read this, but uh, just by way of refreshment again, in verse 8, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And you think, man, in light of what, he just, what he's just experienced, like it takes some guts to say that, Right? What enables him to say that? And the guts kind of continue because if you look on in the passage, verse 9 and following, you see that the Lord is going to give him a message. I was just talking to Pastor Jonathan on the phone about this uh, a couple days ago. You see the message that God gives to Isaiah to give to the people is is that um, you're a bunch of hard-hearted, spiritually ignorant folks that this message isn't going to land on you. And otherwise, In other words, he says, you're going to go and give a message of judgment that until uh, this place is wiped out clean by the Assyrians, uh, there's, no, there's no heart change going to happen. You're going to be ever seen but never perceiving, hearing but not understanding. The hearts of this people are dull, their ears heavy, their eyes blind, and they're not going to turn and be healed. And by the way, lots of the prophets had such lonely, dangerous callings. Jeremiah, perhaps you remember, at the very outset, very chapter 1, when still a youth, God tells him, everyone's going to hate you. Your message is not going to be received, and yet don't be dismayed, and don't be dismayed before them, and don't be tempted to change the message. I will be with you. Or the prophet Amos foretold a coming day of the Lord, when all the enemies of Israel would be finally wiped out, and, uh, and they'd get their comeuppance, and everyone's amped out of their gourds about the day of the Lord. And then Isaiah says, he makes it plain that this judgment is going to be on idolatrous Israel. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. How do they, how do, they do it, these prophets." How do they stand up and receive this call from the Lord and then go discharge it faithfully? How does Isaiah persevere under such a call? How can he volunteer, here I am, send me, even when his ministry is going to be a long, grinding, uphill slog met with resistance and hostility at every turn? And I think, brothers and sisters, I think it's because he's seen the incomparable God in his holiness. What are his opponents? compared to the incomparable god what is a you know a life of ease and apathy and personal fulfillment declaring whatever message you think you 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 can instead of declaring what the lord might say what good is a life of ease and apathy when the god of earthquakes and smoke has called you don't you just go and say what he wants you to say and so you and i when you and i count the cost of god's call on us to ministry and Each of you, as a believer in Jesus, has ministry to do and are called to pour into the lives of others with the gospel. Whatever that ministry looks like, whatever calling God has on your life, when we count the cost of that, to know that the holy God has called you and fitted you for that work will keep you persevering. It'll help you keep things in perspective. A last observation about what recapturing this vision of the holiness of God might do is that it would... Help us savor the beauty of the gospel. You remember in Luke chapter 5 uh, when Peter got a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus? When he's out there and they haven't caught anything all night and Jesus says, you know, cast your net in. And he says, all right, because you say so. And they hauled in this, well, They can't even haul it in, the, the catch of fish that they get. Do you remember what Peter did when he saw this demonstration of the holy glory of Jesus? He instantly understood the ramifications. He fell on his knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And the holiness of God shows us sin for what it really is. And so this morning, are you proud? Are you angry? Are you greedy? Are you lazy? Or irritable? Or self-centered? I have bad news for you. In the face of the absolute holiness of God, all these things are revealed for what they truly are, damnable sins. When you get a sight of the holiness of God, it makes one say, wow, I truly am a profound, wretched sinner. How can I possibly stand before this God? As Paul Reflected in Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? But wonder of wonders, there's another verse after that. Wonder of wonders, Romans 7.25. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God in his grace and his goodness made a way for our sin to be atoned for. The thrice holy God loved us. He loved you even when you were dead in your sins. And he sent his own son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he touches your unclean lips with the coal of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you've put your faith in him, he rescues us. He rescues you apart from any seemingly good thing you've done. Isaiah and Esau contributed nothing to his atonement, right? It's just the recipient. It's just the recipient of grace. God didn't say, Isaiah, <clears throat> first see if you can go a week with clean lips for crying out loud. Isaiah, you've got a lot of sin to make up for. Let's see if you have what it takes. Isaiah, first go and prove to me you're ready to be a good person. No, it's just a sovereign work of the Lord in which God himself does the atoning. And so you and I contribute nothing to our acceptance with God. When we put our faith in Jesus to be saved, we're just the recipients of the boundless grace of God. And we're brought close to the unapproachable God brought close to the Father because anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father, John 14, right? Jesus has made the Father known, John 1, the transcendent God, the unapproachable God, the God who's radically separate is in Jesus Christ, the God who's imminent, who's intimately close, who has loved us with an everlasting love and who will never leave us or forsake us. And so I want to just invite us all this morning to a recaptured vision of a holiness of God. If your spiritual life this morning is anemic and boring, I call you to hear the word of the Lord in his all-consuming holiness and be shocked if you've made a God in your own likeness, a God you can control and use and validate all your opinions. I call you to hear the word of the Lord who is utterly high and separate from you and will not be controlled. And if your worship is just mere ritual and drudgery more to you than reverential joy and awe, then I ask you to hear what the burning angels continually cry out before the throne of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. And perhaps you wonder if or how you can continue to serve others in Jesus' name and the calling that he has on your life. Everyone opposes you. How can I keep doing this? I ask you to hear the word of the Lord who's high above you and above everyone who opposes you. And if you've never been reconciled to God, if perhaps the thought of the Lord and His holiness is utterly, existentially terrifying to you. And you've never known the assurance of forgiveness of your sins and the bliss. Like we sung this morning, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin is nailed to the cross. If you've never known that, then I pray that the Holy God would so grip you with a vision of His love and grace in Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, that you would run to him and receive him by faith and know him as your God, as your loving Father, Jesus, your brother, and you'd accept Jesus with humble faith. May the Lord be pleased to do this in us this morning. Let me pray for you as a church. Oh God, I ask uh, for myself to um, let us see you uh, again afresh with clean different eyes, Lord. Let us see your holiness. May it change us. May it just make us be more conformed into the image of your Son. Thank you, Lord, that you're not just radically other, but that you've drawn close to us in Jesus, that you love us and are so intimately close to each one of us. Thank you in Jesus' name, and may This church, may Connection Church and every man and woman and child here, may they know the peace and bliss of communion with you, our holy God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.